by way of introduction this morning, uh, we've been fans of uh, an old English author, Strange and Mixed Life, Though He Led, called Oscar Wilde. One of our favorite stories of Oscars is called The Selfish Giant. Are you guys familiar with it? Or how many here have heard or seen? the? Okay. Well, let me give you a brief synopsis of The Selfish Giant. Uh, the title is because the giant is selfish. He's got this great garden, though. And while he's gone, he's visiting his cousin, uh, who I can't remember. He's an ogre or a troll or something, someplace else. Uh, the kids in his neck of the world find his garden, and so they come and it becomes their playground. It's got trees and flowers. It's a great place to hang out. When the giant comes back, he sees the kids without his permission playing in his garden, and he is not pleased. So he kicks the kids out. He builds a great stone wall around his garden. He posts a sign that says, no trespassing. His treasure is his garden. Somebody else has taken it without leave, and he doesn't like it. So he gets what he wants, he gets his garden back for himself, and life goes on. Only life doesn't go on quite the way he thought, because he's so selfish, spring refuses to come and visit his garden. So winter comes and stays, and stays, and stays. And so because his garden has become this inhospitable, cold, sort of like a northern barren wasteland, The north wind makes his home there, and the snow, and the frost, and the hail. And the giant's going crazy with the hail beating on his roof, and the wind's blowing through his his home and blowing out his fire in the fireplace, and life is not what he thought it would be when he got what he wanted, his treasure, his garden for himself, no one else around. One day during this cold, barren time, he looks out his window because he hears a bird singing. There's a little fella parked at the bottom of a tree, And he's trying to climb up in the tree the way the kids used to. Only the limbs are too tall. He can't get up there. But the tree that has the child beneath it has blossomed for joy that that a child is present again. So the giant's heart changes. And he realizes why it's always winter in his garden. He runs down out of his castle. He puts the little tyke up in the tree. And the whole garden goes from winter to spring. Everything blossoms out. And the giant gets it. So... He knocks the wall down, and he welcomes the children in. And the garden that had been his selfish treasure, he gives away to those around him. And he realizes the children weren't getting in the way of his treasure in the end. The children were the treasure. So that at the end of his life, he says, My garden has many beautiful flowers, but the children are the most beautiful of all. Uh, He got it. There was a transformation where something that he thought was his treasure and he was going to guard it exclusively, he finally gets in the end. That's not the treasure. The children were the treasure. And I've got to get rid of my wall and I've got to share the treasure God has given me. Park that in the the back of your mind as we look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. We'll be in verses 14 through 20. And with that in the back of your mind, ask yourself this... um, Your first thought, your first response when someone asks you, what is your treasure? On this earth, in this life, someone says, what do you value most highly? What's your treasure? What's your joy? What do you rejoice in? What do you boast to others about? What is it? Park that, think about it. And we'll read through 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 20. 
By the way, we looked at uh, verse 13 last week about the transformational power God's Word had. We parked there, and briefly, you remember Paul's writing this group of believers in the town of Thessalonia, and he's down the coast a bit, and he's written them because he's concerned for them, and he couldn't get back, and he talks about that this morning in this text. Verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. The Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost." But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. This passage sort of breaks up into three themes, and sorry, it'll be a little disjointed because of that. I'll mention briefly the first theme here, which is um, the persecution that the Thessalonians had experienced. And Paul says to this group, you remember, no sooner has the church started than trouble hits, and trouble so severe that they asked Paul to leave, and this had happened in Philippi as well. And Paul says, you guys have experienced and are experiencing the same thing that your fellow believers did in Judea, from the Jews. This, uh, this may be a little hard for us to understand, but if you put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew, um, it's helpful. Uh, you remember, Jesus presents himself to the Jewish nation as their Messiah, and he's basically rejected, or rejected by most. And so those folks that follow Jesus... They're talking about a Messiah that the rest of the Jews reject, don't, don't acknowledge him as the one they're waiting for, which is bad enough. But then they go out to the Gentiles and they tell them that they can become a part of God's kingdom through following this Savior that the Jews have rejected. Well, of course, the Jews all their life, because of the law, they grew up knowing there's a wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. There's a wall. We don't go over there and they don't come over here. So you, if you were a Jew, you didn't eat with Gentiles. You didn't go into Gentile homes because you would become ceremonially unclean. So for Jews in the first century, not only had they rejected Jesus that this Jewish faction group believes in and is talking about, but now they're telling Gentiles that they can become part of God's program on the earth without becoming Jews. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal for the Jews. The Jews, the Jews that Paul's talking about, they valued their exclusivity. They valued their garden and the garden wall, if you will. They didn't value the Gentiles or didn't value the Gentiles unless the Gentiles were willing to convert to Judaism. And this is a theme you see throughout the rest of the New Testament, by the way, especially in epistles like uh, Galatians. So... The Jews that persecuted those first Christian believers, they also wanted nothing to do with Gentiles being brought in to what was still seen at this point in time as a Jewish uh, distortion or a Jewish subset. 
um, you know, it, it took a while before Christianity was seen independent of Judaism. It took quite a long while because the early church was entirely Jewish. It came out of the Jewish faith and the Jewish group. So this was a huge, huge deal. So Paul reminds the new believers that the persecution they experienced was the same that their Jewish brethren had experienced earlier. The second point, and one we'll park with a little bit more time on, verse 18. Paul says, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and Satan hindered us. And what I want to focus on is the Satan hindered us part. Um, Christians, it seems to me, tend to get things wrong on one of either ends of, of a topic or an idea. That is, we, we err by giving something too much credence, too much credit, or too little credit. Um, in the case of, of uh, spiritual warfare, uh, the degree to which the unseen world around us influences, we tend to fall in one of two errors. If you're, if you're raised in the Western culture, we tend to be very rationalistic. Uh, we want to measure it. We want to define it. Very naturalistic worldview. So we tend to minimize the degree to which we recognize the influence of the unseen spiritual forces in our lives or around us. That's one error, one extreme. If you come from, let's say, the 1040 window part of the world, or if you come from some Christian groups that emphasize spiritualism in what I would consider too heavy a fashion, um, you err on the other side. You see angels or demons behind everything that's occurring. Um, and the truth, I think, uh, not because uh, moderation is necessarily a good thing, but be- because the truth often is somewhere in the middle. You look at Paul, and Paul was no rationalist. So he wasn't like most in Western culture today. Paul recognized that the world that you could see and touch and taste and quantify actually existed within a larger world that you could not see or quantify. On the flip side, though, he didn't see a demon behind every bush. He knew that his world existed within a larger world. So he says in 2 Corinthians uh, 4, he said, The things which you can see are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says the temporal world, it's transitory. And, And in fact, the world you and I can can uh, physically interact in is influenced by a world you can't see. That, that's what the scriptures teach. Uh, God, we can't see God. The incarnation, God became one of us and that generation could see him and know him the way we can anything else in this world, space and time. But other than that, you can't see God, but God created the, the universe. Uh, you can't see God, but God holds the universe together every day. So the world we live in, that we're used to, the natural world, it's a subset. It, it exists in an unseen world that's bigger than it, that's eternal, not temporal, versus our world. When Paul talks about Christians and their struggles in the world, like here he's saying you're being persecuted by your fellow countrymen, that's what they can see. But when Paul puts this in the context of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6.12, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is, your primary persecution isn't because of those people, Thessalonians, the Jewish ones in your midst or the Gentile ones. 
those are the people that are imprisoning you or persecuting you, but that's not where this stems from. Paul says in Ephesians 6, your warfare, the spiritual conflict you're in, is actually from an unseen realm. So it's not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. When you see these phrases, uh, Paul is referring to demonic agencies. And whether you're looking in the New Testament or the Old, um, the scripture is clear that just as God has uh, levels of authority and uh, um, he gives authority and permission for, for people and for groups to act in his name, well, you have the same kind of organization under Satan. And there are levels of demonic authorities and they have influence over bigger or smaller portions of the earth. They have different influences. So whenever you see this, you'll see the same thing, I think, in Colossians when it says Jesus uh, overcame on the cross principalities and powers. These, these are demonic to us, unseen powers, forces, and influences. So Paul says when he looks at the spiritual world or looks at the world of the Christian related to warfare, it is primarily spiritual. Though people may persecute you and throw you in jail or call you names, Paul says the energy behind the persecution of Christians is actually from the unseen spiritual realm. Think about this too. When Paul's missionary journey started out, um, he and his company just were going to go back and visit some churches that they'd started. And then they got the bright idea to keep going further to tell more Gentiles about Christ. And this was the mandate from Matthew 28, right? And in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas originally were were prayed over and commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul knows he's under the commission of the church. By God's doing, he's the evangelist to the Gentiles. So he's fulfilling his commission. And if you remember in Acts 16, he decides to go a little further with the gospel. And what happens? He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. The next verse there, Acts 16, 7 Uh, They came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. The journey that Paul's just been on that took him to Philippi and Thessalonia, uh, it had started because he couldn't get someplace else. In Acts 16, the Holy Spirit, it says, and the Spirit of Jesus forbid Paul from going right with the gospel or going left with the gospel And in essence, if you know the story, he eventually gets a vision. He sees a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. And he knows that God forbidding or preventing him from going right or left was because he had another direction for him. What did it look like that the Holy Spirit forbid Paul to do one thing or that the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow him to do another? What did that look like? The story it doesn't actually say, we don't know. But an unseen spiritual force stopped Paul from carrying the gospel where he wanted to. And here, Paul says, an unseen spiritual force prevented him from going back to his friends in this city whom he really wanted to see. He really cared about them, really wanted to encourage them because of persecution, and he can't get there. And he says it's because of another unseen spiritual reality that he can't get there. This time, it's Satan. What did it look like that Satan kept him from going to his friends here? You know, again, the story absolutely does not tell us. 
the Greek for the, uh, the word that he was hindered, uh, it's the sense that it, the way in front of him was cut to pieces. It's like if you saw a map and somebody took scissors and they cut out the sections that connected point A to point B. We don't know what that looked like. We only know that Paul's assessment at the end of the day was, I wanted to go back to encourage you. And remember, some people apparently in their group are saying, Paul really doesn't care about us. And so Paul's telling them, no, I really do care. And the fact that I'm not there isn't because I don't care. I couldn't get there because Satan prevented it. So I'm asking myself, what does that look like? What did it look like that Satan prevented it? And how did Paul know it was Satan and not something else? Do you guys ever have occasions in your life where you think you're doing what God wants you to and something goes wrong and you're scratching your head and you're thinking, is God stopping me or is this demonic opposition? Does that sound weird? And I'm saying something that can sound a little little heretical. I don't think you and I always know whether it's God or Satan. It sounds bad. It sounds really bad. Um, You know, in the Gospels, Jesus says to the Jews who are calling his ability to cast demons out, they're saying that's the power of the devil. And Jesus says, you're guilty of an unpardonable sin. You're calling the work of the Holy Spirit Satan's work. We're not really saying the same thing here. We're differentiating. But to the degree that the unseen world that we can't touch or quantify to the degree that it interacts with ours, sometimes we don't know, is that God in Acts 16 not stopping Paul's advance, but changing the course of it? Is that God? Or is it here, is it Satan, trying to cut off what God really wants us to do? Um, I try and be careful on this. If I don't know, I don't say. Uh, you, You might be one hope I don't offend you, or you may know Christians where when something goes wrong, they say, oh, it's the enemy. This is demons. This is satanic. God wants this thing to happen. And I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if it is or not. I don't know. Most of us don't have the authority. We don't have the spiritual insight that Paul had. So he knew God was saying, no, it was a roadblock. It wasn't, I don't want you telling the Gentiles about my son. It was, don't go here. Don't go there. I want you over here. It was redirection. With this, Paul knew, however he knew, this was Satan trying to keep him from getting back to encourage these new Christians. He knew that was it. In either event, and this is for me where the rubber meets the road, in either event, if you're doing something like Paul was that you believe God wants you to do, and you come to a roadblock or to a dead end, whatever it looks like, where you think, Lord, I'm doing what you want me to do, and suddenly there's a closed door in front of me, there's a brick wall in front of me, I can't go left, I can't go right. In either case, I'd suggest you can do this. Um, Don't give up. Stop and pray. And apart from God giving any specific direction, do this. Just do the next thing that you can do to keep going in the direction you thought God wanted you. Do the next thing that you can do. So for Paul in Acts 16, he couldn't go right. And he couldn't go left, but he didn't give up. He didn't assume his mission was over. 
God gave him some, some specific information, and Paul thought, okay, that's it. The next thing I can do is I'm headed to Greece. Here, Paul can't get back, and he's convinced that these folks need encouragement. They're brand new Christians, and they're being persecuted, and it's tough, and Paul knows they need to be encouraged. He can't get there personally, so what does he do? He writes a letter that you and I are reading today, and he sends it with his protege, Timothy. Couldn't get there himself, but he did the next thing that he could do to encourage them. He writes them a letter, and he sends his friend Timothy. So for you and I, I'd say um, don't be rationalist. Don't assume that the spiritual world is not crashing in on your world. It could be God putting a roadblock in your way because he wants you to change course. It could be this, uh, Satan, the enemy, hindering you because he doesn't want you going about whatever God has you to do. But in either case, pray about it. Don't give up. Don't assume the worst. And ask God, what's the next thing I can do? What's the next thing I can do to further your will? Whatever it was you had me about. If these things are, are off limits to me, I can't do them. Or Satan opposes me here. Lord, what is the next thing I can do? I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep about your business. Uh, piecemealing this together again. Sorry, at verses 19 and 20 and where we'll, uh, we'll finish our time. Uh, look at verses 19 and 20. I hope they strike you as they do me. Uh, why did Paul, why on one level was he so desperate to get back? Um, he knows they need help. But he says, uh, who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? It's you. In the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming, you are our glory and our joy. You Thessalonian believers, you're it. So he calls them his hope, his joy, his crown, his glory. And as is the case for most of First and Second Thessalonians, most of it is seen from the perspective that Jesus is going to come back to the earth. And what does that mean and how does that influence my thinking? And that's the same thing here. So Paul says sort of this. He envisions the end of the day, the end of of this time we have on the earth. When Christ comes back, as he promised he would, and he'll talk more about it in in chapter 4. When Christ comes back and sets up his reign and his world on the earth, and Paul and the Christians, the church, stand before him, Paul says this. When I'm standing before King Jesus, when he's ruling again on the earth, and I'm standing before him, when I talk to the Lord about what I value most, when I boast to the Lord about the things in this life, when I tell the Lord what delighted me most in this time I had on the earth, he says to them, it's you. This is mind-blowing for me. Um, Think of where we live, the the, the time and the place and and the, um, the way of life we have. Most of us, we live in material prosperity. The rest of the world through history has simply not known. And because of this, we tend to measure and value wealth on the measurable scale, the things we can touch and stack up. So the church, unfortunately, is almost always a little behind the world, but we're on the same same track. We tend to value the same things the world values. We're not supposed to, but we tend to. So even in the church today, we tend to value bigger and better buildings and programs and numbers, and we tend to measure 
spiritual worth by natural means. Spiritual worth and value and treasure by natural means. Uh, Francis Schaeffer has written about this. He's got a collection of writings called No Little Places, No Little People, something like that. In which his point was, in God's economy, there are no little people. And there are no small places because anything God's doing is inherently powerful and valuable. So Paul says, when I think about the end of my life and about Christ coming back and ruling the earth, and I look back, the dust has settled on my space, earth, time, what was valuable? He says, you're it. You're my treasure. You're my joy. When I boast before Christ, he says elsewhere, of course, I won't boast. But he says, if I boast before Christ, I'm not going to boast about any of the things he could. If you read Philippians where he articulates all the things as a Jew he could have boasted in, none of that comes up. He says, when I want to brag about something to Christ face to face, he said, I'm going to brag about you. You're my joy. You're my hope. You're my crown. If you look at your life now, whether it's been a few years or a lot of years, and someone says, what do you value? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's your treasure? Where's your heart? What, what gives you joy? What do you take delight in? What, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? If it's not people... If it's not the people around you, you're probably valuing, treasuring the wrong thing. The giant thought the treasure was the garden, but it wasn't. At the end of his life, he realizes the children, they were the treasure. The gardens and the, and the tree, the flowers, that was just stuff. It was enjoyable stuff. It was just stuff. The children were the loveliest flowers of all. He got it. Paul valued the church and he valued the Thessalonians because he knew Christ did. You read in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church. Christ loves the church. If you say today, what does Christ value on the earth? It's you. It's the person next to you. Christ loves those he redeemed, those he died to save. That's what he loves. What happens to all the stuff you and I can accumulate on this planet, on this earth? It's temporal and it burns up because God says he does away with the old heaven and the old earth, burns them up with fire, starts over with new ones. So if you and I treasure in any ultimate sense, anything that's physically attached to this earth, your treasure's in the wrong place. You're valuing the stuff instead of the real treasures. Paul understood what Christ loved, the church, so he did too. So ask yourself at the end of the day, when the dust on your life settles, what, what's your boast? What's your hope? What's your crown? What's your treasure? Let me close with a story uh, out of World War II. Uh, this guy's life uh, inspired a book, which inspired a movie. Uh, and Oscar Schindler was a German. He was raised Roman Catholic in the Sudetenland part of Czechoslovakia. It was uh, an area that Germany... Um, uh, quibbled over after World War I. It was part of Czechoslovakia. And he was a German, ethnically was a German, lived there, grew up there. 
And before Germany actually started World War II, uh, Schindler liked the Germans, his homeland, and he was a spy for them in Czechoslovakia. He was caught. He was imprisoned. And later he was released to the Germans as a political prisoner. When World War II broke out, he was an opportunist, and uh, he was kind of a shaker and a mover type of a personality. So when Poland was overrun, Oscar knew a good deal when he saw one. He bought on the cheap, an enamel factory in Krakow, Poland. And because he was a shrewd businessman, he got the cheapest labor he could. And that was Jewish. They were Jews because it was essentially slave labor. And Oscar Schindler was making a ton of money enameling where for the German army. He made a fortune. Somewhere along the line, and there's nothing in the books, there's nothing I could find, and when people talk about him, there's no single incident that he records. But somewhere along the line, Schindler, who enjoyed the high life, he was all the big parties, he lived a very uh, magnificent, opulent life from the money he made from the Jewish slave labor in this camp in Poland. Somewhere along the line, his values changed, like the giant's. And he started understanding that the Jews who worked for him were spared their lives because otherwise they'd be killed in the concentration camps. And so Oscar Schindler went from a guy whose bottom line was making a buck and living the opulent lifestyle to trying to save as many Jews as he could. And so this required on his part bribing German officials time after time after time. And he got Jews who would have been sent to the death camps as people incapable of, they provided no essential service. That was the way it was phrased, no essential service. Well, if they worked in Schindler's factory, they were considered essential for the war effort. When the Soviets were going to overrun Poland, uh, Schindler and his factory, he, he couldn't stay there. So he was going to move to a munitions factory in Czechoslovakia. He was going to do the same thing. The Germans were going to take his Jewish slave labor. Schindler bribed his way and paid the cost of having those Jewish laborers in his factory sent to Czechoslovakia, knowing if he didn't, they'd be in the death camps. So he goes down, he relocates to Czechoslovakia to a munitions plant. This is kind of the funny thing. That munitions plant never produced one working bomb or grenade. Never. His plant. He, he saved his, his Jewish laborers, but their factory never made anything that worked. So this guy who left Poland with wealth, tremendous amount of wealth, he spent it all bribing German officials to keep this non-functioning factory open to preserve these Jews. When the war ended, he was broke. He had no money left. And if you read his biography, he tried through the rest of his life after World War II, he tried one uh, business venture after another, and guess what? None of them worked. He died penniless in a German hospital at the end of his life in the 60s. Now, he went from valuing money and the things on this earth that you can quantify, get your hands around and physically enjoy... One thing he did say was he simply recognized that the Jews were humans like him and thought they ought to be treated like humans. 
But he valued them enough to say, I'm willing to give up everything I've made to save these people's lives. Now, think about this. If you were one of those Jews or their children or their children's children, do you think Oscar Schindler had his values right? Do you think he had his treasure in the right place? Do you think he took joy in the right thing? You know, those folks would say, absolutely, yes. Schindler went from valuing things to valuing people. He's, he's buried in Israel. He's awarded this, the, the friend, uh, the Righteous Gentile Award by the nation of Israel. Um, he got it. The giant thinks the garden, the stuff he can get his hands around, that's treasure. And he learns it's not treasure. It doesn't last. Oscar Schindler went from thinking the wealth you could accumulate in the high life, that was treasure. And for whatever reason, he gets it. It's not. See, Paul said the real treasure in life, when he thinks of his life, Paul, and he looks around, he says to these people, my treasure is you. So... The application on this is difficult. If you know the people in this room, that's the difficult part, isn't it? If we say people should be our treasure, how well do you get along with your spouse, your kids, your friends? You know where I'm going with this? It's easy to say people are our treasure, but they're hard to get along with. Sometimes they're hard to live with. But Paul says that's still his treasure, and Christ still says he loves the church, and that's us. So we should treasure each other. And we should treasure people who were like us, without God, without hope, lost in this world. And we should want to value the people we're sitting next to, the church. And we should value other people who don't yet know Christ enough to share the gospel with them as well. So someone says, what's your treasure? You look at the end of your life and you say, what was the highlight? What, what lasts? What's my joy? What's my treasure? What do you say? What do you say? Lord, thanks that you treasured us enough to give your son, to pay for our sins, to redeem us back to yourself. Father, help us to honor you and thank you by living redeemed lives that say thanks for you treasuring us. Father, help us not to live hypocritical lives by not valuing others, but as those who have been redeemed at the cost of your Son, help us to take that message of hope and life to those who do not yet know you, as Paul did. Lord, help us to remember and to recognize that all the treasures we accumulate on this earth will one day burn up and be gone forever, and it's only people that last. Lord Jesus, I know you love your church, and you love sinners like we were, like some of us are. Help us to love who and what you love, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.